0: You know, shooting off tripods is something that Kalen and I have done for a very long time, stemming from obviously our time in the Marine Corps and um, as competitive shooters now, and just the overall advancements of technology in tripods, um, especially in the last five years, has really uh, skyrocketed. And so I remember first shooting off of a camera tripod when I was a young Lance corporal or even a, a private first class, uh, in a scout cyber platoon. And, you know, my makeshift saddle was a PVC pipe with, uh, iso mat, you know, glued inside for that hard on soft. And now, you know, I'm using a really right stuff, uh, directly clamped into an ARCA platform, which was, you know, originally a uh, stem from photography. So, um, In this episode, episode 69, Kaylin and I are kind of just breaking down, uh, shooting off a tripod. And we go into other things like uh, wind based off of a recent practice session I did for the Modern Day Rifleman Network. And then we also go into future kind of projects that we'd like to start doing, maybe a new to long range series uh, in our podcast to help newer shooters figure out from start to finish what they essentially... um, should be looking for when starting their journey into long range shooting, because there's just so much information out there. And, and, um, you know, I I think it's very hard to find a reputable source. So hopefully we can be that, uh, for that newer shooter. But, uh, if this is your first time listening to the modern day cyber podcast, welcome. My name is Phil, one of your hosts. And for those that are returning back, welcome back. We appreciate all the love and support and we hope you guys enjoy this episode. Thanks guys. And you guys know the drill. Keep
1: your face on the gun. So how was your trip, man?
0: Uh, it was good, man. It was just short, uh, just a lot more driving than we were there, but it was fine. It was a cool drive. Um, I felt bad for the dogs because we took them down to... So the days that we wanted to go down, we couldn't find a rover up here to to house it, so we just decided, like, okay, we'll, we'll take the dogs with us. And um, we found a rover down a there. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Which worked out, cool. yeah.
1: Um, Excellent. But and who was the guy? Who was the guy? Uh, so
0: his name is Chad. He was my point man for our, uh, my deployment, uh, for my for my last oh, deployment. Cool. Yeah, when I was this, when I was a uh, chief scout. Um, good dude. He's like super. He, so like right now he does like freight. He does like uh, freight shipping um, uh, management, okay. I guess. From from. Yeah you know one coast to another and uh he was just super was just one of those stoic dudes that like showed no pain or emotion you know um (laughs) but uh yeah i hadn't seen him in probably seven years
1: well that's cool dude that's that's cool you got to be a part of that that's that's always a good time arizona's this is a this is about the the best time to be in Arizona dude, before it gets too savagely hot.
0: It is, man. Was we it super warm? Dude, it was. Uh, so the wedding was perfect. It was like in the uh, 90s all week. Um, and then in the evenings, it dropped down to about 60s, which was perfect, right? Uh, but yeah, you're right. I think the what the locals were saying there was like, yeah, in next couple months, it's going to get pretty savage <laughs> up to like mm-hmm. 110, 115. I'm like, man. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, no, thanks. Yeah, no, I'm good with that, man. I mean, it's it's Um, uh, we've been talking about it. Yakima has been getting hotter and hotter every year. Um, we do like well, you remember when you were here that summer, we we had a couple of days It was like 105, 106. Um, and then last summer, man, we had there was a couple of there was about a week where we were in the triple digits like it was 112 in the shade for a couple of days. And it's just getting like increasingly more and more hot for longer durations. And it's like, uh, I would much rather take the cold than anything. I mean, at least I can put more clothes on when it's cold, uh, cold outside. But when it's, when it's like that, a hundred and 110 plus, it makes doing anything outside just completely not doable, just unfun, not fun at all.
0: Yeah. And I, I could see why there's a lot of people that, have um especially out here in wyoming they have a lot of um like vacation homes in the summer out here whereas like Mm. their winter homes are like arizona or florida but then in the summertime those two places are just like it's either super hot with humidity or just super dry and hot
1: (laughs) exactly yeah no that's a good i mean that would be a great place to have a to have a summer home would be you know would be a place like Cody and especially if you didn't like the winters if you don't like winter then you don't want to live in Cody Wyoming that's yeah, for sure yeah <laughs> seriously
0: the winters in, or, the, yeah. or the wind yeah so
1: have you guys had a windy spring
0: so far i the weather's been super weird like last night on my drive home um, yeah, so from vegas to wyoming i can get it done in 12 and a half hours straight shot uh, only you know stopping for gas obviously and and food um, but once we got to Wyoming and, um, from why pretty much it, like most of my trip is just getting through Wyoming cause I'm in the Northwest corner. And, mm-hmm. uh, once we got to Wyoming, um, our trip got extended another three hours cause we hit a weather cell of just like shit weather, mm-hmm. like fucking snow and rain and, um, I had to slow down to, like, 40 to 45 miles an hour and a, a 70, 80 uh, just because of, you know, I couldn't see shit um, with how thick the uh, the rain was coming down. So, uh, and, and like, I tried to put up, my, my like, my radar up, and I was like, all right, see, let's see how long this is. Like, I was literally traveling in the direction of the south
1: Of the Yeah, flow. so it was just like... You were, like, traveling <laughs> exactly.
0: with Exactly. So there was maybe like one or two pockets without any rain and snow. But for the most part, it was just all just couldn't see shit. So,
1: yeah, that's that makes that makes for tough driving. Nobody, nobody likes driving and that stuff. It just it's stressful and it just takes forever. And you're paying so close attention to everything. You're burnt by the time you get there. Oh yeah, well, dude. Well, at least you sensory, guys had no yeah, problems. sensory so.
0: overload, bro. Seriously, like when you get done driving yeah. like that, you're just you're just
1: mentally smoke checked. Yeah, you just want to go lay down for a while and just be like, I don't want to look at yeah. anything. <laughs> so, how was your weekend? Uh, weekend was good, man. We just kind of hung out and. Um, uh, we did a lot of stuff around around the house. We're doing a garden this year, so we tended to the raised garden beds. I got to put in I'm putting an irrigation system, so it's automatic, and we don't have to worry about nice. it. So I, I plumbed in each bed. Uh, we got six beds, and it's gonna be it's gonna be nice, man. I'm, this year we're we're focusing a little bit more on landscaping around the house and getting it where we want it. And so that's um that's been a good time, and it's nice to be working outside right now, just because it's so. It's so nice. Um, actually, it's been pouring rain here this morning. I was planning on going to the range um, and filming that the rest of that tripod video. But I went out to the range. Right, I woke up this morning, and it was just, like, coming down in sheets. And it's not only just coming down in sheets, but it's also gusting. There's a lot of a lot of wind gusts, and, you know, I'm not going to be able to get any footage doing stuff like that. So we'll put that off to another day. But um, I'm looking forward to completing that video uh it's it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see the comparisons and what i'm trying to accomplish with it is just to highlight um different techniques of shooting from a tripod utilizing different platforms and like the last video that we produced um got a lot of attention because people were making the comments of you know uh, you're standing more upright and how can you manage recoil that way? It might lend, it might lend itself more advantageous for sight picture management. But that vertical upright position, it does not appear as though that you're going to be able to manage recoil effectively. And I can say that okay, that's fair. That's a that's a fair assessment if you look at it, um, just looking at it, the position from an outside perspective. Um, but recoil management, the controlling the rifle, does not come from leaning into it. And that's one of the things that I want to illustrate and highlight um with this uh this follow-on video. So I started I brought out the trusty Manfrotto 190, the old school aluminum with the hog saddle and the center column and all the stuff, and um started shooting that with a three oh eight, um, with a three hundred wind mag, as well as a lightweight hunting rifle to just kind of show that um that the differences between sight picture management with that particular tripod and hog saddle combination, along with the effects of recoil management. And, um, we're going to go through all of those with, uh, with different tripods. And then also like, what's it look like when we clip in, what's it look like when we, when we shoot from a bag, um, and what are the advantages and disadvantages to each? And, um, It'll be a good precursor video, I think, to the tripod masterclass that I'm I'm I've, I'm finishing the touches on it, and that the the tripod masterclass is one of those things that's been in the works for a while. But um, th- th- there's techniques that change so rapidly, and I want to make sure that that curriculum is is pretty dialed before we go ahead and pull the trigger on starting to capture it. So, uh, but that's coming, um, and I'm excited to do it because it'll be very informative.
0: Yeah, it, the. I mean, shooting off tripods is such a um, not. I shouldn't say touchy subject, but there it, it is a it is a very new subject in the um, realm of uh, civilian um, shooters. I would say mainly because mm-hmm. you know. I mean, we've been shooting off tripods. I mean, military has been shooting off tripods w- way back when, right? Um, we really mm-hmm. saw the use for tripods in, um, OIF, a lot of your generation, right. Um, that eventually mm-hmm. over, bled over to my generation of like, Hey, you know, the Marines that are going down range need to be proficient off shooting tripods. And again, back then this was pre really right stuff Two vets, tripods, Leo photo tripods. I mean, we had to go down to the ocean side, Photoshop freaking um, <laughs> camera place right <laughs> uh to get yeah, man to get, yeah, get Manfrotto tripods and th- back then they were like 400 bucks and four to six hundred dollars and as a pfc forking out four to six yeah Corvall, like yeah. four to six hundred dollars for a, a, a stocking tripod was huge and then you know we this is again before mm-hmm. saddles before arcas and again we have seen the essentially beginning through the evolution of of what we see now and how we use it now of the different techniques when shooting off a tripod. Right. And so I I honestly, like I couldn't tell you the last time that I clipped in other than for a demonstration. Um, And what I mean, clip in is like attaching the rifle to my belt just because of how slow the deployment it is. And again, it, you know, a lot of the, the, the engagement techniques that I apply for demonstration purposes and for, uh, you know, competition or whatever, uh, are all fast paced um but then i still even in a sustained position i have not found really the benefit or use for clipping the rifle into my belt right um you know and this is again shooting up to about a 308 platform uh a, a military law enforcement would use um i'm not saying there's not any mm-hmm. merit in it especially when you start going up to those 300 wind mags or even um you know three three eights or 300 normas like Brian Morgan's shooting up with the SF guys in, um, hat Creek, but, you know, realistically, if I was going to shoot a heavier platform, I'm going to try to get my ass as low to the ground as possible. And at that point, clipping in only really makes sense in the standing or kneeling positions. If I'm sitting down the, there's really no torque being applied because I've got two points of contact with my elbows mm-hmm. and you're pretty much in the, like a prone position anyways. Right. Um, so there's really no torque that you can apply to stabilize that rifle, anything lower than the low kneeling position, in my opinion. So
1: I agree with that. Um, the, the fact like shooting in the mountains, um, tripods are an absolute necessity. Uh, and like what, what Brian's got going on up at hat creek it's a obviously it's a it's an amazing training facility and they're truly utilizing like long-range interdiction platforms and that's actually a really cool subject i think because you know as the marine corps and big army start to have more uh, more choices i guess that, that you could call it of what weapon system to choose for a specific mission you know there's there's different applications and it kind of goes back to our um our last class in the network on hasty versus sustained positions. Because all of those uh, those two different platforms or those two different um, thought processes of engagement, whether it be a hasty engagement or a sustained engagement, um, you can utilize those with tripods. And you have to be able to figure out, OK, like what can I get away with? Because if I'm shooting in an urban environment and I'm moving with uh, an infantry unit and I'm in direct support of that infantry unit, your tactics of employment of a sniper weapon system are going to change. They're not going to always They're You're not always going to have the time more often than not. You won't uh, unless you're holed up for the evening and you're in a defensive position and you're now, you know, you've shifted gears in your mission to a defense instead of an offense. And so we're going to go from hasty positions and now into a sustainable position and, like a long-range interdiction platform like a 300 wind mag 3 300 Norma 300 PRC whatever it is you want to call it a 338 lapua there's gonna be that utilizing those platforms obviously everything can change but more often than not those are long-range interdiction platforms where you're going to be in some sort of a sustainable position where you have time and opportunity Um, to To build a good, solid position to deliver a shot, because you do have recoil management to worry about in those considerations or those situations that you have to consider um, to be able to see what's going on downrange and to be able to to read your to read your impacts, your effects on target, and make corrections appropriately. So your position definitely has to be uh, more robust, I guess, if you if you want to call it. And I think that there are just agree, like I'll agree with you, man. I think there are times where clipping into a tripod in a sustainable position or a sustained position is absolutely advantageous. Um, Not even, and I'm not even going to say it's, it's advantageous for recoil management because we, you and I both know that we can, we can achieve the same recoil management without clipping into a tripod or without clipping into your belt as we can with it, because, I view the clip-in as more of a stability uh, thing than anything else. I, I don't really see it as a recoil management uh, deal. I, th- I, d- I see it more as a, as a stability because, yes, you absolutely can. You're, you're locking the rifle into place with the clipping in, and you're making that reticle like, virtually solid as you would in the prone position. But there's pros to that and there's cons to that. So um, the cons to that in an urban environment are movement. I have to be able to move very, very quickly <clears throat> and being clipped into a tripod or attached to a weapon system like that. And it, it just, for me and based upon my experience in urban combat, not where I want to be, um, especially if I have to move quickly. So,
0: yeah, it, it again, it, it goes back to just, again, the touchy subject of people that, um, uh, are are still again. I'm not in anymore, right? I I don't know what's being taught. Um, I don't know how snipers are being employed uh, in in regards to the current uh, threats. There, you know, the uh, big military is pre- uh, preparing for. Um, but just based off of again shooting, uh, because that's I would feel like that's what we kind of uh, expert tight or were experts in you know, understanding the shooting aspect. It's like, all right, um, I need to be efficient when moving in and out of a shooting position. Right. Uh, so that Mm -hmm. I can minimize the amount of exposure that I have, especially as a, as a sniper. Right. And clipping in, um, you know, and what I mean by clipping in, but attaching yourself to the belt system, you know, just again, it's just slow. um, and again i think it's just one of those topics that uh depending on time and opportunity if you're teaching uh the uh system you know uh it's definitely one of those sustained but it, it, i think it's important to also make the clear de- delineation of like hey uh this is a hasty position and this is a stained position right because you know we all see young snipers when we start teaching our barricade or our our positional class, right? Um, them trying to clip in when shooting off of a barricade—it's like okay, that's completely, um, you know, that that just adds more uh, stress and strain to your processes, right? That is completely mm-hmm. uh, unnecessary to engage, yeah, uh, based off of again the just the techniques that are proven, right? And I know for a fact. Uh, because I've shot, I've, I've shot with them. They've they've come out to Hard Mountain, uh, but a lot of the you know um, SF guys that you know you don't see you know on social media or whatever, uh, you know they're utilizing the same techniques competitive shooters are using, you know using a bag and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And I know that they're doing that uh, overseas, so and are effective with it. Yeah.
1: Yep, and and that's the thing where. Um, where people, where there's commentary that comes out, the commentary that comes out and says, um, you know, well, those are those are uh, competition techniques and they don't really apply to me and, and or it's not really applicable to what we do. The, that's completely and totally untrue because the people that, like you said, the people that are in those positions and they're trying to drive curriculum, they're trying to build... They're trying to make sure that their curriculum stays at the, at the forefront. You have to go out and figure that out. You have to go out and look at new techniques and you have to go to see what is it that shooters are doing? Okay, well, it works in this scenario. Let's see if it actually works in our scenario. Um, And so part of this video is actually, it's spawned from, um, it's spawned from the whole adage of put your money where your mouth is. You know, there was a lot of commentary on the negative aspect of that first tripod video. And it's just like, okay, guys, well, then let's, we have to go out and we have to just to, to prove this and to show you what this actually looks like in a sight picture. And we have the technology to do that. We can do it with a trigger cam. We can do it with, um, with, uh, with video and we can show you that, Hey, this is what happens to your sight picture when you apply this type of recoil management technique this is what happens to your site picture when you lean into the tripod um this is what happens when you know you do these things and then you can see for yourself you can make your own decisions based upon what you see and then you can go out and try it and and s- and make your own assumptions. And that's exactly what these guys are doing when they go to these competitions. They're like, all right, cool. Those guys are doing that. I'm going to see if I can make that work for me and my application. And it might not be a 100% across the board fit. You might have to make some tweaks here and there. You might have to be like, yeah, you know what? That doesn't really work, you know, exactly the right way or the way that it does over there, but we can take some of those techniques and apply them to how we do business now and make ourselves more effective, make ourselves faster and and more lethal on the battlefield. That's exactly what we're trying to do.
0: Yeah, and I'm guilty of having that, you know, mentality of, of not uh, adapting, right? Um, perfect example, tripod rear. You know, I was super against the tripod rear because it was like, you know, that was just like in competition because like, why like you just need a bag right and then i found myself Mm -hmm. on occasion a lot of times where you know the support that i was given wasn't stable enough or you've got 20 to 25 mile an hour winds blowing you around like a rag doll um and it's like wow that tripod rear and knowing that technique and when to apply it just really helps with your just ability to uh put that bullet exactly where you need it and not have to worry about you know four to five tenths of wobble because or mechanical wobble because you're getting again tossed around with wind or you just got a shitty front support um
1: we and you would be remiss if you didn't teach um a professional student uh that's utilizing a precision rifle in a professional capacity that technique because Absolutely. If I'm trying to take a very like a a very limited exposure or a a low hit percentage shot, such as a hostage scenario or something like that for a law enforcement guy, I would be completely negligent by not teaching him that technique. To be like, hey man, put this into your bag. If you know that this technique exists and your the front of your rifle is supported by a piece of furniture or something else in that house that you're occupying bring the tripod rear up utilize that piece of gear get more stability out of that position because that's the whole goal of building a sustainable position is you constantly upgrade your position if you have time and opportunity we should be constantly improving our position whether it be through camouflage or whether it be through stability uh, from which to deliver a precision shot so Yeah. I mean, I think these techniques, it's funny. I remember, um, I was talking to Adam, Adam clone. (laughs) He was, he would always make the comment. He's just like, it's tripod rears dumb, you know, miss, take your miss with honor. (laughs) So, but I can totally appreciate that. Um, but I do believe that if you are in it for, um, to be competitive and that was kind of a, that was kind of a road that, or a vision, um, a corner that I turned in, in vision and saying, if you want to be competitive, you can't be leaving points on the table because other shooters are just going to be like, yep, those are mine. And I'm going to go ahead and scoop those up because I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get those points. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not going to be an idealist because I'm here to play a game. That's, I, I was super resistant to that for a long time. Um, and I'm not anymore because I can totally, I can see it. And, and for us as trainers in the space too, we got to be open to everything and to be able to say, all right, right, cool. Well, here's an application where you could use this technique and gain some more stability, some more recoil management, go try it. And you figure it out for yourself when it is that you want to use it. Um, You know, if you think that you can get away with, with deploying a tripod and using it for your rear support in a shooting stage, and you think it's worth it to give it a shot, go for it, man. See if your plan works. And if it doesn't, guess what? There's no better way to learn that lesson than to watch your plan crumble in front of you and just go, oh my God, this was really stupid. All right. Well, then that's exactly how you're going to learn. You're not going to learn by going, "Mm, I'm going to play it safe and I'm not going to give it a shot. Um, And then you see somebody do it and they're successful with it, but you haven't practiced or trained and you try it anyways. And again, it's just going to fall apart for you and you're going to learn your lesson. You got to, you got to go practice it figure out when, when and where, uh, the it's, it's applicable.
0: Yeah. And I think that's the thing is that's why what I've enjoyed lately about traveling to different places and competing is that I'm able to expose myself to just different, different situations and scenarios. Right. Um, a couple of things that I do want to try to hit this year, um, are a couple of the team matches. Uh, and I think we have one uh, lined up uh, mm-hmm. in in June, uh, but even yep. I think there's a lot of those like uh, the new Vortex Sniper uh, team challenges, um, or the you know the mm-hmm. the team challenges that are out east, um, those East Coast guys. Yeah, uh, th- there's yep. there's a couple series out there. I, I can't think of them at the top of my head, uh, but even um, the steel uh, the steel safari uh, with competition mm-hmm. dynamics, right? The team safari. Um,
1: <laughs> That's always in October. Yeah, the st- the team safaris. So uh, that's October. just
0: that's just so tough because it's freaking hunting season, right? Um, but you know, I I would say that with with uh, like hunting, you know that I mean, just on my recent hunt in in Texas, I think we talked about this. Like, I found myself. I don't know if we did talk about that. I don't know. I found myself going from a, a hasty position to, all right, I've got time, I'm waiting, I'm in a very uncomfortable position because I can't hold this for long, so Mm -hmm. now I can just feel myself trying to melt down to the ground, right, because it's more, it's more, it's just more sustainable, right, so, like, you know, you you get to a position, you set up, and you know, I'm in, like, this high, low kneeling, but I can only kneel down in that position for five, ten, five, ten minutes before it's just like, all right, like, I need to get lower cause uh, you know, my knees are starting to hurt. So, you know, as long as I can clear the bushes or the vegetation, I'm going to sit down. But obviously at first, just because of having to build a very hastily position, all I did was just pull mm-hmm. my tripod out, open up my legs. Um, and then again, as I realized I got more time, now I'm widening them out get a wider base so I can lower the profile and then essentially sit down with my legs crossed. Um, into uh, into the shooting position. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the only way that you're going to really expose yourselves to those situations uh, uh, is by getting outside of your comfort zone, by going out hunting, going out in different terrain, uh, in different areas, urban environments, mountainous environments, right? Because um, there's no one right answer that's going to apply for um, every single in, uh, situation that
1: you're no. at. <clears throat> No, and you you're going to notice that as you get yourself into more and more hunting scenarios, uh, that the the transition between the a hasty to a sustained position is going to happen quite a bit because more often than not, you see an opportunity, um, you pursue that opportunity, and then you get yourself into a position where you can shoot, and then all of a sudden the animal you know goes out of vi- goes out of view, right, or it lays down and you know that okay in this position um i can't shoot here because it's laying down and he's not giving me anything to shoot at so i mean he's not going anywhere and i'm definitely not going to let him be so i'm just going to sit here and you're going to build a a, a more sustainable position because who knows how long you're going to be there until he gives you an opportunity to shoot that happens all the time um I've been on sheep hunts i did i did uh, we, you know one sheep hunt here where the hunter waited for like 45 minutes um to to shoot and it was just waiting for that waiting for that one step that one step out from behind that tree because these animals they don't have any they don't have any concept of time they're just gonna do their thing they're just gonna eat until they've decided to take another step and um you know you could see all kinds of situations where Hey, if you're not comfortable, fix it. Like we tell people in in positions, don't settle. There's going to be – you're going to have to understand when to settle. And if it's a hasty position, when – like how much can you get away with settling versus a sustainable position or a sustained position where it's just like, no, don't settle at all. Make sure that that position is, is as solid as possible with the time that you have.
0: Agreed. Yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, what – So, so... – what I wanted to ask you was when, so I just did a, I just did a recent video for our, um, uh, our monthly subscription service, our practice. And it was kind of a, I think we talked about it. It was kind of like an audible of like, um, I had about 42 rounds left from the previous uh, match that I shot. Uh, so I was just running rounds with my BRA and I wanted to talk with you about, um, Reengagements in regards Mm. to not seeing any splash or just being just like okay, you saw splash, you know, off the uh, downwind side of the plate. What your immediate correction would be? And and Chris Wade texted me, which was a great which was a great uh, text because he saw my video that I posted. He's like, why half of the plate instead of three quarters of the plate to give yourself more room for you know, for, for error essentially, which is kind of what we teach as well. Right. But when I was doing the video and doing the demonstration, the what first came to mind was just like cutting half the plate um, because I'm always trying to correct the center. Right. Like I think mm-hmm. because like, Hey, I want to get back to center. I don't want to overcorrect, you know, I'm, I'm only using half the plate instead of three quarters. Because I definitely have seen myself being in situations where if you overcorrect, then you now end up on the upwind side of the target. Does that, does that make right. sense?
1: Yeah, because so I think that is a I think that's really good because what do you do? So there's two scenarios, right? It's like, well, um, I either have no observation all right, I have no observation, no, no effects observed or the bullet impacts so far behind the target that, you know, the wind call, the, the wind call might, might be there, but it's like, it's going to be hard for you to derive a really accurate correction, especially if that bullet's like impacting, uh, you know, a hundred yards behind the plate. So you can surmise that if the, like, if you do see that and it's a skyline target and you, and you see a signature, come up on the right side of the plate you know and or on the downwind side of the plate you know that obviously you didn't hold enough wind so you have to figure out then in your brain okay well but the bullet also is like another hundred yards behind it so what does that look like for a wind hold correction for that one target then we also have the other situation where we're completely unobserved and it's a complete air ball and okay what do i do now that's those are tough scenarios, man. I, I had I, I used that same scenario uh, in our wind call clinic uh, last week to describe what happened with uh, the deer I shot at up in the mountains last fall. Those air ball misses. I had no con, I have no idea where that bullet was going uh, because there was no effects. The bullet was just getting sucked up by a bunch of vegetation with wet ground. So for me, in that scenario, I'm gonna hold more wind uh, in that particular scenario. I doubled my wind call because I needed to see something. I needed to. I needed to make something happen. So the other problem is is that most of our stages nowadays, from a competitive standpoint, you only have two shots. More often than not, it's two shots per plate. Um, and so if you then you you're like, oh well, if I overcorrect, I'm gonna be on the upwind side, like you said, and I still didn't get a hit. Whereas in that situation in a competitive environment, all I'm looking for is to hit the plate to salvage a point. And hopefully when I hit the plate, I'll be able to read the plate well enough to be able to refine that wind speed to take it to the next target. So what's your your point of view on that? You're saying half. you're gonna apply half the plate, uh, half the plate with more in wind.
0: Yes. Yeah. Um, What I'm what I'm going to do is is I mean, my first initial adjustment is to add half like, okay, so if I've got wind, right, um, if I'm already holding for wind and I see Mm -hmm. nothing, the very first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to add half the width of the target in my wind call. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. Um, but yep. for the example that I gave in the video, I was holding dead center, and right. I mean, I just—you can just see that that trace just barely miss off the left edge, and then just like,
1: uh, yep, yeah,
0: came over half the with the target, and then I just centered up, dead centered up, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, what that allows me to do is like quickly be like, okay, I hell, I the target is about 500 yards away the target's about five tenths wide so you know but back to center at a minimum is 0.25 it can't really hold that in my scope right so 0.3 mm-hmm. would be is then unless i'm you know unless you're running a leopold uh pr2 radical or the leopold, the new leopold mark 5 radicals um so for my skimmer four i can only see two three four or i can two four six eight a mil and then in-betweens are all odds. So I adjusted to 0.3 and then what that allows me to do now is kind of reverse engineer the wind call in my head, right? And be like, hey, Mm -hmm. with my gun being an eight mile an hour gun at this range and in elevation, I know that the wind is about four miles an hour, right? Mm -hmm. So then I can apply that to... To the Yeah, next target. to the next target, assuming that my direction of fire is all still the same. Um, and obviously the wind is blowing uh, consistently. What was actually cool yeah. uh, in the video that I just took, though, with uh, the winds, um, you can see the mirage kind of dying off um, and, and coming to a boil and picking up. Um, So as I'm shooting these different wind calls, you can see when the wind calls a little too bold or not enough uh, based off of the mirage. Right. Um, But I think uh, with newer shooters, again, because of, we talked about this in the last episode, the sensory overload, the visual overload, I mean, you know, especially if they don't have their fundamentals down, like they're not able to process those changes in wind speeds in the mirage because they're just focusing on like, Hey, reticle target, boom, right. Trigger press, send it, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, and I think that's important. I think it's an important skill that needs to be incorporated into your training. And I think like, um, the, the tape turret drills and the, or just like what you did, you're just like, Hey, I know there's wind out there, but I'm just going to hold, I'm going to hold straight up in the center and I'm not holding straight up in the center to get the wind call. I'm holding straight up in the center because I know I'm going to miss and I want to train my brain to go into that process of, Oh, I need to add. That's where the bullet lands. I'm going to measure with my reticle, slide the reticle over, identify. That's my, my correction, press the trigger and then go just like you did the reverse math of saying, okay, that's a four mile an hour wind. So next target I'm going to look at my card i'm going to hold i'm going to hold for a four mile an hour win for that next target and then in in that you start to also training to say what, what did the mirage look like take a snapshot of the mirage before you leave yeah if you yeah. can that's hard to do that that's really hard to do that's that's another that's another visual um that's another visual bit of information that you need to that you need to tend to and manage and more often than not I mean, I'll admit it more often than not, I I don't do that. And I know that I need to start doing that or forcing myself to, to be better at making sure that I don't leave before I check the Mirage again. Um, sometimes I do, sometimes this, I don't.
0: This goes back to um, uh, when I talk about, uh, again, reverting back to a competition or a competitor. I mean, you can even do this. It, it still all applies even if, regardless of your application, right? Uh, but when you are doing certain things like a troop line, right? Um And, you know, we do this for our modern day sniper evaluation, which is just slightly modified, um, is if if you have two minutes to shoot five targets, you should maximize all those two minutes. Right. And if you're if you're flying by Mm -hmm. and you you know, you're shooting a two minute stage in 90 seconds, but you're only getting, you know, six out of 10 because you're getting wind fucked or whatever the case might be. Well, what you could be doing in those mm-hmm. 30 seconds, like you said, is, is take a, a snapshot or take the time in between your shots that like stop and visualize and look at the wind. Right. It's like, all right, from the last yeah. time that I made my shot, because I think what we talk about a lot too is, is, okay, well, what are a lot of top shooters doing? Um, and what are a lot of mid pack shooters doing that are, you know, constantly in the top. You know, twenty-five percent or whatever. And what I talk to them a lot is a lot of them are are going back. They're they're correcting off of their last shot, right? Because that's the last piece of information that they're able to see downrange, right? Assuming that it's a it's a good mm-hmm. shot. Um, but I think to take that a step further is not only you know going off of your last shot, but also now taking a snapshot of the conditions and taking the time to be like, okay. Right. From the time that it's gonna take me to dial to the next target, find the next target, right? Winds and mm-hmm. you know, we've been in situations where winds could, you know, especially depending on the size of the target, winds could slightly pick up another two to three miles an hour, that's gonna push you off a plate, yeah. you know, that's only a one and a half yep. to two MOA wide. Um at those further distance. So if you take the time to calibrate your brain to be like, Okay, it's almost like watching trace, right? You almost kinda have to uh start adding in processes to your uh checklist of like okay after i take this last shot what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna wait two seconds and i'm gonna try to read the wind right assuming that my my bullet connects to it and be like okay this is what the wind looks like now when i transition to the next target dial my stuff right because when you when you have to dial now you're completely unplugging from the wind right and your mental cognitive load is like hey find the target, dial my dope to the next target, right? Get my position settled. And then you, yeah, you forgot. Exactly. <laughs> now your brain refocuses back into what your win call is, but it's like, well, is it the same exact win that I just shot 10 to 15 seconds ago? And I think mm-hmm. that's where the, yeah. the, the higher level of competitors are able to separate themselves, right? Cause they're able to actually take that time to, stop and visualize, Hey, is that wind still the same? Or do I need to adjust whether add more wind or scale from there? Cause it's very, I mean, we can see it when like, you know, you've been in a staging area where, where guys are shooting. And again, you're, you're, you're just on glass and you, you feel the wind pickup. Right. And you start seeing, you start watching the guy and he's not catching it. And you just, he's just hit sending them down range. And you're like, you're like, Oh, he didn't catch that wind pickup. Well, ask yourself, well, would you be able to pick it up? Because
1: would you be exactly, able to pick it up? Because
0: you're not the one that's engaged right now in those 90 seconds where you're, you're, <clears throat> you're overloaded. Yeah. You're just on glass. So obviously you can, you can feel it or pick it up, but can you as a shooter pick it up in those, in that time? Like, are you, are it, you that in a, a short yeah, period you, like are you, that? Are you that aware?
1: Yeah. In a short period like that, I would say probably not. Um, it, for my own abilities at this point, like, And I have been doing quite a bit of those faster stages of the, you know, the 10 position, 90 second stages, just to make sure that I'm working on my time and my process. Um, However, I find myself more utilizing plate reads on that than anything else. It's normally something like that. It's a single target where I'm just looking at it and I'm like, okay, well, last shot broke. I was holding 0.5. I hit center. Go to the next position. I'm gonna take that same wind call because I'm moving super fast. I'm just gonna center up 0.5, and then all of a sudden, if I call the shot, a good center shot, and the plate swings to swings one side or the other, I know in my head I'm like, okay, I'm a tenth or I might even be two tenths on wind. Who knows? It's but I I know that I swung the plate other than center. And I called a good shot. So that means I either have to listen, I have to believe that bullet and take that, take that information and apply it to the next win call for the next position. And either I'm instead of instead of holding point 0.5, I'm gonna hold point 0.7 or point 0.3, you know, whatever, whatever the the plate read tells me to do. So but I am in those really small, I mean, so you're budgeting nine seconds per position. Um, and I'm usually averaging about seven and a half seconds. To be able to build a position and break a shot. And so that other two seconds for me is taken up with movement of like getting there. Um, or the other second and a half to two seconds is taken up by just getting to the position. So there's not a whole lot of time in there for you to visually process like what was the Mirage doing. Yeah. And I mean, there there very well could be upper level shooters that are that are at that point and that that are visually processing that information. Um one of the like I I love talking to Duffy about this stuff because the more, like we talked about it in the last episode, the more you dig into the nitty gritty of shooting as a, as, as in general, not doesn't matter whether it's with a pistol or a carbine or, or, or a reticle. um, It's still an aiming device. And so we still have to be able to visually process the information that the aiming device is telling us. And, and that's, that is really the meat and potatoes of Getting, getting down and, exp- and figuring out how we can separate the, the upper level competitors from the, from the rest of it. It's, it's, it's how we visually process things. Um, one of uh, Duffy's mentors is uh, Frank Proctor of, um, oh geez, I'm having a brain fart right now. Um, it's the way of the gun. Yeah, he's got a YouTube channel called the way of the gun. And Frank is an amazing, amazing pistol carbine shooter. And he has a lot of drills that are specifically formulated and focuses focused on visual processing. Um, he's got one that he calls the time machine, and the time machine is simply there to allow to, to to teach you to track your sights. And he's got a row of eight of eight targets up, and they're all very close together, um, meaning like they're only like six or seven inches apart. And his and the purpose of the drill. Is to hit each of those targets with two shots each, but to make your shot cadence undiscernible. It should be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, to sixteen rounds. And it's a visual sight processing, uh, uh, a visual sight processing drill because he's like, I want you to see a sight picture every single time you press the trigger. And I want you to be able to track your sights through the process of recoil. And as soon as that gun, as soon as the muzzle of that gun settles on the target, I want you to press the trigger again. And I want you to keep that cadence of one, two, three, four, and hit two rounds per target. So things like that, where that guy just looked at it and said, okay, well, in order for me to get faster, I have to be able to see my sights faster. And we talked about this in the last episode. We can only shoot as fast as our sights will let us. And there's where that, that, like that it all, for me anyways, it all starts to come back to, uh, the visual processing. Like how fast can your brain, your brain process this visual stimulus and turn it into data actionable data.
0: That's a great, yeah, that's a great point. You know, so that's, I'm like the very, what the, what, what the very first thing that I think of is like, that's our aiming process, right? As soon as we come into this, mm-hmm. the rifle scope, our aiming device for a long range shooter is telling us our main thing is how how or is it the right target that we're shooting at obviously right and how good is this shooting position that i just built and we mm-hmm. we grade that based off of our wobble zone right mm-hmm. and how much of that reticle mm-hmm. is moving across the target in any given shooting position and then once we decide in our brain that, okay, hey, this is the best position that I could possibly build given the time constraints or given the position or given my experience, then that triggers me to roll over to my firing controls of like, okay, now it's time to press the trigger. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what we try to avoid with our students is that timing of like, all right, the best position that they could build requires or, or shows them that their reticle is dancing off the target. And what they're trying to do is time it as it's crossing the target threshold, wherever that, that case is. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I don't like teaching my students to time their shot is because then what that does is like a domino effect, creates them to try to now slap the trigger. Now we're inducing fundamental errors into their you know, their process. Right. Does that, does that make sense? Right. Whereas like,
1: Oh, for sure. If you're
0: able to build your shooting position and this is why, you know, understanding your body position and how it relates to your wobble zone. If you're able to identify, Hey, I've got good side picture. My wobble zone is within the threshold of that target. And in the center of that wobble Mm -hmm. zone is, you know, dancing in the center of that target. Now, all I have to do is trust that my bullet is going to go. And this is, goes into, you know, having confidence in your weapon system, right? Knowing that, hey, that bullet's going to go exactly where that reticle is pointing, you know, mm-hmm. within 0.1 yeah. MOA or 0.1 mils. of um, radius it, it, from, from the, the center. center, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, assuming <clears throat> that I don't, you know, fundamentally screw the shot up. Um
1: Yeah, that that actually becomes it's kind of like it becomes cancerous uh, in in your in your process, because if you start doing that, I think it all boils down to to patience. You got to be patient and you have to train shooters to be patient. Um, And I think sometimes going to competitions can that can uh, that can breed impatience very quickly. Because you see something, you're like, oh, I should be able to do that. I should be able to accomplish that specified um, that specified stage. And so therefore, the brain says, um, or the ego says, I've got to do that. i got to get that done at all costs, even if it involves doing things like that, timing your shots and stuff. Whereas, whereas if we shift the focus of saying, all right, instead of, I'm not going to be able to get that done. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to allow myself to be patient and I'm only going to work to get through half of this stage or two thirds of this stage, but make sure that all the shots that I do break in that half of the stage or the two thirds of the stage that I'm, I'm doing them correctly. And I'm doing, I'm, I'm, I'm applying my found my fundamentals correctly because when we don't, man, that's just, those bad habits will take place. They, they will grab a hold instantaneously. And once that happens and your brain thinks that that's acceptable behavior for that particular situation, it's going to do it over and over and over again. And it's going to be really difficult for you to break that uh, for, for you to break that routine. So slowing down, giving yourself the opportunity to have patience, allowing yourself the opportunity to have patience. And, and going into an event like that with, with with reasonable expectations of your skills and abilities, well, it, 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 it is supporting good application of fundamentals of marksmanship. Um, doing it the other way, it's not. You're actually going to do, you're going to do yourself more harm than you are good.
0: Yeah, and this is, you know,
1: one of the things that
0: uh, we've, I've been really trying to implement in our competition courses or even our advanced courses is that, hey, you know, when you are going into our class, you know, we're not going to, the goal is not to to turn you into uh, an Allison Zane over 48 hours, right? Or a, uh, you know, Kalen Wojcik, Phil Valle, Morgan King, John Pinch with the two to three days that I have with you. Uh, But the goal is to uh, identify A, your deficiencies, um, and B, give you a, a foundation of tools to w- figure out how to continue to um, refine your processes, right? So that when mm-hmm. you are training at uh, at your own pace, at your own leisure, you are you're training correctly, and you're not developing these um, these uh, training scars, essentially, um, or uh, mm-hmm. competition scars, right? So, like you know, the very first competition scar for me, especially when I apply it to uh, military or law enforcement application is the bolt to the rear thing, right? Like you can, uh, that easily shows up when I'm doing demonstrations for military or law mm-hmm. enforcement guys and I'm you know transitioning from one position to another and my bolt's to the rear. My students always ask like, do we have to transition with a bolt to the rear? It's like, no, you don't have to, right? <laughs> no, you don't have to. <laughs> but I, I just, again, it's yep. just one of those things that like for me, it's hard for me to break, right? And then I have to actually now focus mm-hmm. on Putting that bolt back in a battery um, for that specific Moving class, with, yeah, yep.
1: Um, Moving with a hot weapon,
0: and so mm-hmm. yeah, and, and when, like you said, when students or newer shooters are faced with such tight part times, right? They they want to try to get all ten shots off in ninety seconds because everyone in their squad's doing it, or you know maybe. Mm -hmm. The person in their squad just made it look easy, and they're like, oh, I could do that. Not realizing the complexity of like, man, that person has probably done that drill 20, 30 times already, right? Mm -hmm. And if especially if this is your first or second rodeo, like, hey, man, take the time to, like you said, get three positions, right? And then what you're now Mm -hmm. doing is you're instilling – better habits for yourself versus better habits. versus going down the deep end of like, Oh, I got to go super fast. Right. Try to time your shot. And then now you're just, yep. you know, you're just off to a bad start in, in regards to your processes, um, in your, in your fundamental, um, in your fundamentals marksmanship.
1: It's interesting. Um, my, my, my son, Luke is into Rubik's cube at the moment. And he's killing it, man. He's he's killing it. He picked it up just as quick as he picked up playing the guitar. And he's down to like doing on a three by three Rubik's cube, he's down to solving that thing in like 25 seconds. Like I can sit there and mess that cube up. Right? I can mess the whole thing up and spend five minutes doing all the things to get it all mixed up. Hand it to him. He looks at it for I don't know, 10 seconds and then he goes into his thing and i mean his fingers are moving so quickly and you can tell his brain is just all his brain is doing in that moment is it's pattern recognition and it's memorizing specific algorithms of of, of how to turn the the pieces to get them to line up and to get all of those colors to match right it's all it's all pattern recognition and watching him progress through his visual acuity as well as this the speed of his dexterity. He's just, he's just getting faster and faster and faster. The more he doesn't, we had a conversation the other night about the, you know, the, the, the 10,000 hour, the 10,000 hour rule, right. Where it's like the, in order for you to become an expert on a specific topic or task, you know, doing it for 10,000 hours. I don't know if it's 10,000 reps or 10,000 hours, whatever it is. Um, I think 10,000 reps is a little bit different than 10,000 hours, uh, definitely in terms of time, but trying to get them to understand that it's only going to get better. And if you just continue to, to train at the pace that you're training, because you took the time to build those, those solid fundamental principles, you're going to get faster and faster, but at the same time, you're also going to have longer plateaus the faster you get because getting faster when like he showed me a competition where people are solving these Rubik's cubes fill in like 6.8 seconds, 6.8 seconds, dude picks up a Rubik's cube and he can solve that shit. And it's just like, and so for Luke, that's his goal right now. It's like, I need to get to that level. It's like, man, the difference between 22 seconds and six seconds where you're at right now, it seems like that's an eternity because it is. But if you stick to your process and you continue to to solidify these these algorithms in your brain and work on your dexterity on your dexterity, things will things will come. Like they will they'll show up. It'll all, it'll happen. But it'll take time, just like shooting.
0: Um, one of the things that I I want to you know I the the growth of the sport long range shooting is like never. Ending, right? People are always coming into, people are always referring to the podcast. And uh, one of the things, as I look back into like our 68, now this is number 69, um, podcast Mm -hmm. is like uh, a roadmap of what Mm -hmm. a newer shooter, we almost should do like a series, right? Bring on like enthusiasts, some of our riflemen here and talk about their journey, right? Of like, hey, where they started, what what, what kind of um, background they come from, you know, in terms of like why they got into shooting, uh, how much time they actually have to, to commit to shooting, the, you know, local range that they have, you know, and how far that that is for them, yeah. right? Because there's a lot of things that, you know, people don't realize that that it takes to get into shooting. It's, it's more than just buying a rifle and then learning about exter- external ballistics, right? It's like, hey... How, many, how much time and resource do I have to, to um, uh, develop into this craft, right? Uh, is it just going to be a hobby um, uh, or whatever the case might be? Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, in a lot of it, right, obviously just comes down to your budget. You know, how much time or how much are you willing to fork out initially to get started, right? And then, you know, what does your fundamental route look from there? Like, is it... Uh, is it watching a bunch of YouTube videos? Is it taking a professional class? And, you know, it all, obviously it all stems down to what your overall goal is and your, your application. When you want to apply this to competitive shooting, you Mm -hmm. want to apply this to hunting, you want to apply this to, you know, especially if you're younger, pre military, you want to apply this to potentially, you know, um, find yourself in a military law enforcement, uh, professional Mm -hmm. background. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, more times than not right now, I'd say a lot of, because of how, how explosive the competition community is. I, I see a lot of trends in our inboxes of like, Hey, I want to get into competitive long range shooting. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, like, Oh, they're recommending that I take a class. And this is why I almost fucking hate some of those Facebook groups. Cause you just see a whole, a slew of garbage being thrown out and, 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 mm-hmm. and the dude's question is not even, uh, answered. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, this goes back to vetting your instructor. Right. The last thing you want to do, even if he's in your local area. Right. is like, oh, this guy was a sniper back in, you know, the mid 2000s. And it's like, OK, well, mm-hmm. what has he done since then? Right.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> what kind of professional development has occurred since that point? That's then?
0: right. And, and so yeah. um, I definitely think we should do a series in regards to like, hey, you know, um, the journey of a, a new long-range shooter or whatever. Because um, I think that'd be a great, you know, like, hey, starting with the rifle, starting with understanding the circle of components. Um, you know, when when to really start diving into the nitty-gritty of external ballistics, right? Because I think a lot of times, too, when, when people are na- not able to go out and shoot, they just over-paralyze themselves with information in regards oh to external gosh, ballistics, yeah. right? um and not realize that like well honestly a lot of why your shots are getting thrown off at 100 yards is not because you know you're you're uh you're over spinning your bullets or whatever or some kind of crazy shit
1: it's got nothing to do with the amount of free bore you got you know it doesn't have anything to do with none of that bullshit Because a factory Tika will, a fa- you've proven it. You know you can take a factory Tika. Who knows how much freeboard is in that thing? You know it doesn't matter. Okay, we're gonna zero it. Make sure it's shooting. Putting bullets where the crosshairs go. Okay, next, moving on. Next skill. Um, figuring out. Yeah, there and there's like you said, there's so much misinformation circulating in that specific niche of uh, knowledge in our community. Uh, which is why, you know, I, we reached out to Jaden and we're going to, we're going to start introducing a, a, uh, an external ballistics specific series of episodes for you guys, because we want the best information being put out. And we also want to bust some of these myths that are, that are also, that are still out there. And if it's any one thing that, so these last two clinics. You know, basically what I do in the morning is I'm like, all right, guys, once we do our in brief, once we do our safety brief, we do our introductions and all that stuff. I'm looking at them. I'm like, hey, I'm going to give you guys exactly 60 minutes, one hour. Here's the zero range. You can go over here to the long range line and you can this next hour. It's for you to get data and have check your dopes, make sure that all of your systems are a OK so that way we can train. And obviously, mover clinic, we're not shooting We're not shooting out past, you know, 500 yards. And I tell them, hey, you know, don't spend, don't burn up a bunch of ammo trying to touch those targets out there at 1,400, 1,300 yards. It's unnecessary for this class. But even for the wind clinic, it's like, hey, guys, you know, we're going to be shooting out to 1,200 yards. So make sure that you verify your data out to 1,200 yards. And people don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand how to manipulate their their, their data, they, or their ballistic solvers and they're, they're utilizing solvers with like the wrong drag curves and they're utilizing the the improper Jeep, the BCs. And it's really a, it's, I think like you said, the explosion of the sport has been so rapid that everybody's just like, I don't care about all that stuff. Just tell me what I need to do to get in here and hit targets. And you end up skipping a lot of these very important processes of knowledge that you need to have instilled before you take the next step. Because a lot of that stuff is troubleshooting. It's saying, okay, well, my bullet did this. Why did it do that out there? What, is there something inside this piece of software that I need to manipulate? And if so, what is it that I manipulate? Um, And why am I manipulating that particular variable? So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Because there are, there is a tremendous amount of misinformation out there surrounding that part of it, and I, and I do believe that it's just from the blow, the, the growth of the and the explosion of the sport.
0: I think that's something we could probably start with the next episode, right? Is is on on seventy because even with um, some of our our listeners, right? Um, a lot of our listeners that do recommend podcasts recommend our podcasts, and you know, if you guys are listening, you know, one thing that um, at the end of the day it's going to come full circle You, you at the end of the day are becoming uh, a you know uh, an instructor yourself right especially if you've you if you've already yeah. listened to all the way up to episode 70 or 69 or this episode and so like starting 70 it's like oh hey we're going to start I uh, I don't know new to long range series right kind of like what uh, um, Frank did with uh uh, the no, no BSBC kind of series uh, with uh, mm-hmm. Brian Litz and, mm-hmm. and Emil, I thought it was great. Right, I always go back to that mm-hmm. every now and then when I want to just uh, uh, a data dump or knowledge dump of of good stuff. And you know, we can only dedicate the next five to six episodes to talk about what we recommend as instructors and trainers and what we've seen in terms of like where a student's progression should go. You know, like hey. Mm-hmm. Want to get in the long range? This is how it starts. You know, you figure mm-hmm. out what your what your why is, then you figure out your platform, right? Are you building a lightweight system? Or are you going straight competition? Okay, because that's right. gonna you know ultimately, all yep, all this all this matters. I mean, your why ultimately matters, right? It's like it always gonna is going sure. to bring you back to as you're diving into this sport of you know this endless black hole of information. And you're gonna get overwhelmed at first, right? Because it's just a it's just a straight fire hose. Um, but mm-hmm. when you figure out your why, it's also gonna bring you back to, okay, hey, this is why I want to do this, right? Um, yep. and obviously, you know, for us, at least for me, I like to focus more of the the art, the art approach versus the scientific approach because I'm not a ballistician, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. practically I understand that there's a lot of stuff that's just noise. A, a lot of stuff that people overanalyze and they just are too scared to pull the trigger. The only time, the only way that you're going to get better at shooting at long range is by sh- actually pressing the trigger and shooting at long ranges.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It's it's interesting. We had some guys that were like, oh, um, you know, the famed, my barrel sped up. And... Or, I, or something's changed something is different um we had a couple of a uh, couple of students in uh, in the wind reading clinic that had that happen to them and they were super baffled they were like I don't understand what's happening I'm like okay well you know are you are these is this a hand loaded is this loaded ammunition and I think hand loading is also another one of those huge huge areas along with external ballistics where, there is another a lot of misinformation out there and and you know like i have no idea how you developed your load i have no idea what process you used to develop your load i have no idea if your load is actually truly in a, an accuracy node or not it's very difficult for me to see or say that without actually seeing the process that you took to get there or where you're at right now and there's people out there that are doing load development inside that 250 round mark. And what's ended, what's happening is, is as your barrel starts to, to change its properties, its physical properties, you can actually, with a barrel speed up, that's not always going to be like you, the the, Im, the point of impact shift that results from a barrel speed up is not always just a function of velocity increase. That velocity increase could have taken you out of the accuracy node and put you into a scatter node, which is also going to shift your point of impact on the target. And that's it could be low, it could be left, it <clears throat> pardon me, it could be high. It just depends on where the where that scatter node is or where the bullets are exiting the muzzle in that scatter node. So things like that, um that that's also I think kind of coming like systemic in in the in the in the community. It's just You got to be able to follow these things the right way or else you're going to be chasing problems that you really don't understand what it is that you're chasing. You know that there's something uh, awry or amiss, but you have to be able to track it down and understand how to track it down. And the only way you're going to do that is to have the knowledge that backs it up. And that's where I guess that's where we come in, right? So that's where, that's why we do what we do. That's why we put these podcasts out to, to hopefully help people have a better, more concise source of information or more sources of information. We're not the only of course, we're not the only people out there doing this. There's tons of good podcasts out there that have great information on them. But I do think that with the explosion, the rapid growth and explosion of the sport, that the the baseline knowledge that that's required is kind of taking a back seat to actually just being like, oh, I don't care. Just like let's just just get out there and let's go do it. I just want to buy a gun, buy buy some bullets and and go shoot. Right, so there's a lot more to it than just that.
0: I had this. There's this guy that uh, on Facebook it was one of the groups showed up his. Uh, it's funny that you talked about barrel, barrel breaking. This guy showed up his uh, his groups. He's like, "Hey, I'm testing my loads. The brand new right, brand new barrel and stuff like that." And he's got like 38.5 to like 41 grains, and uh, mm-hmm. you know people are asking him questions like. How many rounds do you have on that barrel? And he's like, Oh, this has got less than 50. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. and then you you have guys like, oh, you should repeat the, this 41, or you know, you should look check out satellites testing and stuff like that. And I just threw up there, I was like, I was like, I was like, you need to load a hundred rounds, hundred to hundred and fifty rounds of that 38.5, chrono the first five, <laughs> shoot
1: and just train Shoot some kind of barricade
0: <laughs> or some kind of wind practice. And then yep. at at 101 to 105, recheck that velocity. If it sped up, you're good. If not, yep. shoot another 50 mm-hmm. more. And then uh, because uh, like yeah, like you said, man, the too many times guys are building, and I've seen the I've seen the all the the horror stories, uh, and even you know again yep. you know talking to um, or seeing again, Brian Liss has made a, a, a presence on social media, which is pretty cool because mm-hmm. he's essentially taking what he's, um, uh, done in his books. Right. And, in, in um, a, like it's just putting it now on in, in more, uh, digestible bite-sized posts essentially mm-hmm. with, uh, with right. good yeah. essentially uh, visual aids, uh, to back it up. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting that you say that too, because like Brian, when Brian's books came out in 2009, I want to say it was either 2009 or 2010, the first books, his first book came out. Like that's, that's literally the Bible, man. Yeah. Like if you want to do this, you need to read that book. You need to read that book and you need to read it cover to cover. So that way you understand exactly what it is that you're doing. Because like, so to his, there's a recent post that he made about like the mechanics of wind and what, and, and how the, how the wind is actually, causing your bullet to deflect this is not new information man this is this is like old information that was published in you know 2010 and to me reading like to me seeing that and and people in this in this sport don't know it yet it's just like oh dude like we need to continue to promote that to continue to put that stuff out there um And it needs to be, it needs to be like a constant flow because that's, you need to know that stuff. The wind is not actually physically pushing your bullet. Your bullet is drifting as a result of parasite drag due to a different vector of between the bullets direction of center of gravity travel and the nose. And so like, I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not Brian Litz, but like, those are, those are really core pieces of information that we need to know as long range shooters So that way we can kind of visualize what's happening because if you can visualize what's happening with your bullet flying through the wind, you're going to, you're going to be utilizing the, 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 the catch-all, Oh, the wind shifted on me or the wind died on me in a whole new light because the way that a bullet flies through the wind, wind is like, um, wind is water, right? It's fluid. So it's not like it just shuts off. You know what I mean? It doesn't just shut off and that bullet is going to stay in that motion, right? It's going to stay in that motion until either a lower velocity wind or a direction change causes it to shift its nose direction. And that's not happening instantly. That's happening progressively as the bullet flies through the sky on the way to the target. So those things, those things will take time, right? In the time of flight that the bullet takes to get to the target, So it's not just this like instantaneous shutoff, right? And so I think being able to visualize what's happening with the trajectory of the bullet really helps us understand, okay, I'm not going to be afraid to shoot the bullet into that wind because I'm going to make my best guess on the wind call and I'm going to say, okay, I think it's six-tenths. Cool, six-tenths, send it down there, see what happens. And then you can visualize and see like in your brain, like, okay, that bullet's going to fly through the sky a little crabbed and then it's going to, you know, it's going to either increase or decrease the crowd based upon increase and decrease in wind velocity, which I think for me, anyways, that helps me kind of visualize what's happening. Um, it gives me kind of a better uh, situational awareness of what's going on.
0: It's funny that you're, you're talking about um, that. I, I just, was just thinking about many moons ago when I first started shooting, you know, I was at sniper school And you're trying to come up with a wind call for your, for your shooter. And honestly, Uh I didn't know shit about (laughs) fuck. Right. (laughs) And, and literally it it is just straight up guessing at that point, you know, like, like thinking about how I call wind now 15 years later, after the fact, from my first attempt at cyber school to, to now it's like, holy shit, you know, like
1: it's totally different
0: uh because again there's just so much going on I, again i was just like because like i mean at that point when when you're when you're working at cyber school you're in a shooter spotter period. what's nice is the shooter is just focusing about shooting right the spotter's mm-hmm. giving the call but as a spotter even as you're trying to make up a wind call it's like i remember like looking and i'm like i don't know what the fuck i'm looking for <laughs> right it all looks the same like the fucking little squigglies that my instructor just drew right yeah <laughs> like it's like okay i see it in the scope but it's all the same you know
1: right it, looks it all same. looks the
0: same you know and, and you know at 117 alpha when you got that the winds coming from from the uh from the ocean uh in, into mm-hmm. that bowl i mean Range 117 Alpha. I don't care where you're at, where, where you shoot it's, from. It's I've been hard. to uh, the only range that I haven't been to is Geiger's range. Um,
1: I, you're Hat, right, I have not been to that Cox range, range
0: that. but out of the other sniper schools that I've been Hawaii, uh, Quantico, and Pendleton, Pendleton is by far the hardest range to call win for, um, for known distance.
1: Yeah, yeah. both on 117 and 116. Yep they're, they're both super tricky just because the way the terrain sits there and and those Western winds coming off the ocean, um, that can be, it's a bear, you know, it it is, it's a bear. And those guys that are, you know, they come off that and, you know, you are a good wind caller. If you can, if you can graduate from that, from that range, you're a good wind caller, you know, or you at least have like regurgitated information enough. And there's always the couple of percent that just kind of get through because, you know, the, 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 wind gods were in their favor that day, but, um, it, that's one of those situations too, where you can get condition screwed. You can get condition screwed really fast in that range. And the fact is, is that you can get condition screwed on just about any range, right? It doesn't matter where you're at. You just have to be able to read those conditions and go, okay, today the wind is coming into my face and it's fishtailing from like one to 11. I got to be on my game today. I can't slack. There's got like, there's no slacking today. I'm going to have to really pay attention to all those visual cues to help me identify whether or not the wind is coming from right to left at this moment or left to right at this moment. So, and it also boils down to like, how, how good is your, is your teacher? And that's a big thing. That's a super big thing when it comes to going to a school such as that is how good is your teacher at teaching you how to do this? because that's a huge limiting factor. That was one of the things that I made sure that I did at the schoolhouse was I would run us. I decided that the reason that we were struggling so much with, with getting students to pass known distance was we weren't really giving them a whole lot of time to learn the conditions and go, okay, well, what does that actually look like down there? Okay. Well, so I started running a skeleton crew in the butts um, for each relay. And so, like the morning relay, I would only take uh, however many students, however many targets, carriages we had. Those guys would go run the butts, and then everybody else on that butt relay would be on the firing line behind the students shooting, and they would just sit with me and just use their spotting scopes to read Rind and read Mirage. And, and we would just pick ter- targets and be like, hey, target point number five, let's watch him for a little while. What's he doing? And we're away, we're outside of earshot from the rest of the students. So that way we're not kind of like polluting um, the students that are shooting their ability to read wind. Because I'm a big believer too that you're going to have to make your own mistakes when it comes to reading wind in order for you to learn it. Like you can't just be like, oh, okay, that's five tenths. Okay, well, how did you get to five tenths? And if it didn't work, why doesn't five tenths yeah. work? The only way you're going to learn that is just to fail on your own. Yeah. So. We just let them just, they're not stressed out. They're not getting screamed at. They're not doing flutter kicks, right? It's just like, they're just here to read conditions and go explain that mirage right there. We're still shooting minutes at that point in time. That mirage at this range is a three minute wind call, right? That mirage at this range equals a three minute wind call. Fucking write that shit down. down. Write it in your notebook, you know? And then you study this, you study those images and say at 800 yards, this mirage that I saw in my spotting scope and then I would make them make their own sheets of uh, their own cheat sheets that I would make them clear tape to their sketch kits so that way they could refer to it and say, if I see this mirage at this range, it's fucking three minutes. <laughs> so, so and and we saw scores increase as a result of it. Just just giving students a, a better a more more time to read the conditions because that's like that's the goal, right? The goal is to create snipers. That's it. Period. And if we're as an, as a, as a teacher in that space, if you're not doing everything within your power to help that student achieve that goal, then you're in the wrong line of work. Period. Shouldn't be there. Great. So that's my story, man. I'm sticking to it.
0: Oh man. Well,
1: I think this is another fantastic episode, man.
0: Um, I think uh, this is a good one. yeah. Hopefully we're able to
1: We're right on that hour
0: mark. Hopefully we're able to get back into our, our, our routine and a rhythm here. Um, with us having uh classes at home now that we're not traveling mm-hmm. as much. Yeah. Um I know we've got MST Way this month, uh which is should yep. be which should be good. See you in a couple of weeks. Um but yeah, yes. I've got some I I've got some ideas to run by you after this podcast and then maybe we can talk about in the next one. Um, but, yeah. uh, a couple of things popped up as we were, we were talking and just, again, it's just the, the, the wheelhouse is turning and, uh, but yeah, this was good. I, uh, yeah, I got, not, got, not, got nothing, got nothing, got nothing.
1: Perfect time to wrap yeah. it up then. So. Awesome guys. Well, uh, again, guys, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate every single one of you guys. Um, classes are going to be—they're in full swing. We know that we owe you guys our Q4 schedule. Um, Philip and I are going to start working on Q4 schedule into uh, 2023 for in-person classes. Uh, that's coming down uh, down the pipe for you guys. And classes are pretty much booked, man. If you want in, we've only got a couple slots left for some of the classes in in the summertime. So make sure you get in on it and uh hit us up in the network we have great communication happening within the modern day rifleman network that's things growing every day so we appreciate you guys in there and um we've got a really good headspace hub lesson i know by the time you guys get this podcast um you have missed the live session because of editing and all that stuff but we have a really good podcast scheduled or i'm sorry a headspace hub lesson scheduled With Owen Mulder and uh, my wife, Cassandra, they're going to be talking about uh, visual cues and all different kinds of of headspace hubby type topics. So if you do want to get in on that, hit us up in the network and that will be available for replay if you're a member. So and we're also offering that as a drop in. So um, with that being said, that's all I got for you guys.
0: Appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you guys in the next episode, and you guys know the drill. Keep your face on the gun.